good to be with you this Thanksgiving weekend. We have a lot to be thankful for. Uh, one of the things I wanted to share with you is something that you all did that we can be thankful to God for. We just finished our Operation Christmas Child program, and we collected here at First Free 300 and fir- 315 boxes for Operation Christmas Child. So that's an awesome feat. But we also were a collection center for the area. And as a collection center, we had 20 volunteers who worked at Operation Christmas Child. We processed 1,175 boxes that are going to be sent around the world to children, and not just to give them a wonderful gift to open on Christmas, but that gift also has the gospel. And we want our prayers to go with each one of those boxes as we do that. So thank you for participating in Operation Christmas Child. In the last few weeks, you've been hearing about our Thanksgiving offering, formerly known as Take Back Black Friday, but we've renamed it. So we, we have two projects that we're giving to, and the offering begins today. And you can give at efree.org slash Thanksgiving. The first of the projects that we're going to be giving to is Oasis International in, in downtown St. Louis. Now, Oasis is a familiar partner with us. We've been working with them. Many of you go down and volunteer at Oasis, or you actually work with some of the refugees through Oasis. But they have a, a wonderful building in a great part of downtown St. Louis in South City, but, but the front of it, the windows are broken, and they're not energy efficient, and there's not a lot of security with them, and the city of St. Louis is really after them to get them fixed. And ministries like this, they have their whole budget going to ministry with people, and they just don't have a lot of a big pool to draw from to fix these windows. So we have estimates, and we've committed to replacing the front windows on this whole storefront there. And there will be opportunity for you maybe to participate with some of the work. Once we get the project defined, we'll, we'll let you know when there are opportunities to serve. So that's one of the projects. The second one is a global project with Reach Global, our ministry partners in Athens, Greece, for specifically the Kipseli Church in a section of downtown Athens. Very, very much a lot of refugees and immigrants are coming into this section of of Athens. And the church that we're partnering with has had a really small storefront building, only holds about 50 people. And so the two services, it's common that people would come in and couldn't even come in the building because it was too full. So they've purchased another building and this building is a lot bigger and it's very close. Here's a picture of the building, the facility that they've purchased. We are going to, as part of our offering, provide the heating, cooling, uh, sound system, seating, other things for their ministry to kick off. So please give generously and pray for what God would have you give. The offering's open at efree.org slash Thanksgiving. And hopefully you picked up a luggage tag when you came in. That's just a reminder to pray for both of these ministries and also symbolic of what God calls us to. God calls us to go somewhere. So put that on your, uh, on your luggage so that you're reminding to pray and to go across the street and across the world to share the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray for these ministries right now before we open God's word for the message. God, thanks for letting us give and participate in these two ministries through our Thanksgiving offering. Uh, For Oasis, such a close partner and friend for our church here, doing such a great ministry of welcoming people into our city, but not just welcoming them with, uh, with a place to live, but welcoming them with the love of Christ. And we ask that you would just further the ministry of this place. Thank you for letting us help them with such an important practical project as replacing all of the windows on the front of their facility so that it will be attractive, it will be safe, it will be energy efficient, 
And it will be a place for people to be welcomed and to meet the gospel, meet Jesus as well as friends who welcome them into our country. And we thank you for the missionary partners that we're working with in Reach Global at the Kipseli Church there. I pray that every dollar that we give to go for this project, just like Oasis, will, will not just be a dollar for a chair or a sound system, but, but they'll, they'll be almost in our minds a, a soul tied to that, a person who needs to hear the gospel, who otherwise might not know the love and the hope that they have in Jesus, that we can have in Jesus Christ. So use this for your glory. Thank you for letting us participate in it. And now as we, as we look into your word, we, we just ask that you would make room in our hearts for your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to encourage us, to teach us, to mobilize us, most importantly, to be the people that you've called us to be. Amen. I read an article not long ago about the ethics of being silent. There was a man who wrote this article, Emmanuel Chavidian, who told of one time when he boarded a train, he lives in the Northeast, he got on an Amtrak to go to Annapolis for meetings he was speaking at, and he got on the car, train car, and he found a seat, and he sat down, and he greeted the man next to him, and introduced himself, told him where he was going, and asked him a question, and the man just looked at him with kind of a scornful look, and then he tried again, he introduced himself, and he asked where he was going, and trying to just make friendly conversation on the train, and the man turned to him, and with great intensity, whispered, this is the silence car. And that's when he realized that there are certain cars on that section of Amtrak that you're not supposed to speak on. And he followed the rules from that time on. There are times when being silent is the best course of action. There are times when being silent is who we are. Our youngest child, Jonah, uh, interestingly enough, when he was little, he didn't talk very much. And all through his toddler years and even early in school, he just just didn't talk a lot. Some of his teachers would even call us, he's just quiet all the time. And his friends would say, Jonah said something, kind of a surprise when he would talk. And and he observed a lot. He was very interactive, but he just didn't talk a lot. And I remember once he came to me and he was kind of self-conscious because people were pointing out how quiet he was. And I reminded him and reassured him that most people in life get in trouble because they talk too much, not because they're too quiet. So just hang in there. You're doing all right. Stay quiet. But there are times when being quiet is not good, isn't there? There are times when silence is not a virtue. It's not okay. Ethicists tell us it's not okay to remain silent when my silence actually communicates something that's not true. When my silence allows you to believe a lie that's not ethical. Or when my silence, if, if, if I witness a wrongdoing and I remain silent, I'm completely in that wrongdoing. That's why in our society, it's not okay to remain silent. If you, if you even suspect that there's a child being abused or an elderly person being abused, it's not okay to remain silent. We need to speak up. And as we apply that to Chris, as Christians, and this ties into the passage we're going to look at today in Acts 18, we, we look at our duty to make Christ known to the world. And it's a valid question When is it okay to be silent, and what does our silence mean when we are silent, when we ought not to be silent? Last week, we learned of Paul's visit to Athens, the intellectual center, birthplace of democracy. He disputed with the philosophers there in the Areopagus, and from there, he travels to Corinth. In Paul's day, Corinth was the largest and most cosmopolitan city in all of Greece. 
Corinth was the, the place you would go. It was actually bigger than Athens. It was newer than Athens. It had a lot more happening than Athens had. It had two ports, and people would, sometimes these large ships would be transported across the peninsula to the other part of the other sea across this. There's a big canal that takes it now, but it was amazing, the port city of Corinth and what the cargo that was going through there. Here's a map, by the way, to help you locate Paul and his team in Corinth. Uh, Sincrea is one of the port cities, so that's where Corinth is. And you see here the, the red line shows Paul coming from Berea down, making his way to Athens, and he probably had to come into this port city of Corinth and then go to Athens. The green light line, by the way, that's the, that's the route that Priscilla and Aquila, who we meet in this passage, probably took from Rome to get to Corinth, where they meet with Paul. Now, in Paul's day, as I said, this was a, this was a booming city, lot happening there, very cosmopolitan, a conglomerate of all kinds of values and backgrounds and idolatrous practices. They had all of the Greek gods that Greece had, but they had even more. There was a temple of Aphrodite on, on Acro-Corinth, which I'll show you a picture of in a moment. And there was just a lot of immorality. In fact, it was commonly said to be a Corinthian. If you called someone a Corinthian, you were describing them as an immoral person. That's the, the reputation that this city had. Um, now, there was a Jewish settlement in Corinth. There's a large stone lintel on the doorway, which has been excavated, which points out where the synagogue was. The, the one that's been uncovered is probably later than Paul, but it likely is the same site as the synagogue that Paul went to when he went to in, in Acts chapter 18. Um, if you join our Greece trip next year, we're going to actually go to Corinth, ancient Corinth. And here's some pictures that Adam and I took last year when we went on our vision trip with the missionaries that we're going to be doing our mission trip with in June. This is just a picture of ancient Corinth, one of the streets. The next picture is actually part of the, the Bema, the, the court place where, where Paul was tried in this section of Acts. And then another picture of the city. And then this is Acro-Corinth, which just, Acro just means high. So this is high Corinth, just like last week we talked about the Acropolis, a high city. There were many Acropolises in Greece. It was just the highest part of the city, maybe not the highest, but a high part. So this is where the Temple of Aphrodite would have been. This is where a lot of other idol worship took place. And then there's a Temple of Apollo that you see here remnants of that. And then this last picture is just a picture from lower ancient Corinth. And you can see how this hill in Acro-Corinth was just kind of visible everywhere. It loomed all over. And so when you read some of Paul's letters and he talks about the food offered idols and the idolatry that was going on there and the problems, it's like you could never really get away from seeing that testimony to hedonism, to, to idolatry in this city. Now, one of the most interesting parts of this part of Paul's missionary journey for me is that we can tie the section that Luke writes about in Acts with Paul's letters. And in Corinth, we have two of Paul's letters that we can read and we've studied them that give us insight into the nature, the personality, the tone, the tenor of life in Corinth. And What's, what's amazing is in Luke's account here, we see the birth of this, and we already see some of the seeds of what Paul would later write, the challenges and opportunities that were available in this church. 
Now, it's worth noting that Acts has this predictable pattern as you've been with us the last few weeks. Paul comes into a city, he comes into the city, and he goes to a place of prayer, the synagogue, or if there's not a synagogue, he goes to a place of prayer looking for people that are interested in spiritual things, Jews or Greeks, and he would find people there, he would share the gospel, some would come to Christ, Jews and Greeks would come to Christ, and then things would go well for a while, and then there would be opposition, either from already inside the city, or we've learned that there were people that just followed Paul around and tried to stir up trouble for him. And then when there would be some accusations made against Paul, he would go before whatever tribunal or magistrate in the city. And usually that magistrate would say, this is an internal religious problem. I'm not going to deal with it. And Paul, sometimes it would go in Paul's favor, sometimes not. And Paul would, would move on. And so some variation of that. But in every case, there's one thing that remains true. And that is God is faithful to his mission of building disciples. He's faithful to his mission of planting a church that would remain and be a testimony to the work of God's salvation. So let's look at Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 1. Then Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived in Italy, from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar was deporting all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. So Paul left Athens, traveled about 50 miles to Corinth, and he met this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Now these two, he didn't know them before apparently, but he meets them. They would become longtime ministry partners and key key players in the planting of church and growing of churches in the New Testament. Romans chapter 16, verse three, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of the gospel, Paul writes. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches here in the province of Asia send greetings in the Lord as do Aquila and Priscilla and all the others who gather in their homes for meetings. And 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 19, give my greetings to Priscilla and Quilla, those and those living in the household of Anesiphorus. So verse 2 tells us that these two were deported from Rome along with others under Claudius Caesar. There's a historian named uh, Gaius Suetonus who wrote during this imperial period of Rome, and he wrote about Claudius expelling all the Jews because of a tumult instigated by a man he called Crestus. Now there's another historian who dated this event about the ninth year of Claudius' reign between early 49 and 50. It's it's believed that Suetonius, in identifying this tumult caused by this guy named Crestus who led to all of the Jews being expelled from Rome, was probably kind of confusion over the Latin name for Christ, which is Christus. So it's, it's assumed by many scholars that actually what was happening was early on, and, and we couple this with, in Acts chapter 18, we have no record of Paul evangelizing Aquila and Priscilla. There's nothing here that said he shared the gospel and they and their household you know, embraced Christ. There's nothing there. So it's very likely that a group of Jewish followers were already in Rome The gospel had already reached Rome by AD 50 before Paul had ever got there, which is 
really incredible and exciting. Remember back at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the believers there in Jerusalem, what happened? They just went back to their places and they shared the message of Jesus. So the gospel, we've been following Paul's branch, but while we're following Paul's branch, the gospel's doing its thing all over. People are coming to Christ. And so apparently Aquila and Priscilla already found Christ in Rome and there's a church in Rome, a group of believers, but they'd been expelled and they made their way to Corinth. Verse three talks to us about, or tells us about the common vocation that Paul had with Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. That is, they worked with leather and other materials to make tents and related projects. Now, in some of Paul's other letters, he does tell us that he supported himself, but this is the only place that we learn how. This is the only place that we learn that he actually was a tent maker. Rabbinic writings tell us that it was often, a rabbi would often tell his students that they should have another means of employment, another means of financial gain, because that way they could keep it from looking like they were just using their teaching of the Torah as a money-making scheme. Because in that day, just like in our day, there are people that try to use religious teaching to enrich themselves. Verse four demonstrates the common pattern. He goes to the synagogue to persuade the Jews and the Greeks that Jesus is the Messiah. And that leads us to verses five through eight, where we see how the gospel engages this culture. Let's read those verses. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, but when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. Then he left, went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. Now, it's not explicitly stated here, but it seems, and I'll show you other verses that support this, it seems like Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth with, a financial, with some kind of financial support from the Philippian church. Because when, when Paul or when Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth, it says Paul then spent all of his time preaching the word. He didn't have to make tents anymore. He was able to spend all of his time doing that gospel work. In his last recorded letter to the Corinthians, he supports this, uh, that Timothy and Silas brought a gift. Now, in this section that I'm going to read in 2 Corinthians 11, he is scolding the Corinthians, so it seems kind of harsh, but the point I'm getting at is he refers back to this gift that was given. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. Was I wrong when I humbled myself and honored you by preaching God's good news to you without expecting anything in return? I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. And when I was with you and didn't have enough to live on, I did not become a financial burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, which is Philippi, where Philippi is, brought me all that I needed. I've never been a burden to you and I never will be. And then in Philippians 4, Paul refers to this as well. The apostle praises in Philippians 4, the Macedonian Christians, those in Philippi, their congregation for generously supporting his ministry. It was a deep encouragement to him. And in thanking him, here are the words he used. He said, your gifts 
were a sweet-smelling sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Jesus Christ. Now all glory to God, our Father, forever and ever. Amen. Now, it's worth pausing here because I think this is a good time. We don't talk about this a lot uh, here in this setting, but it's worth recognizing how we have a similar way. We still do missionary work this way in many, in many ways. The patterns have remained the same. There are a lot of transferable principles. Before I share how we do it, I do want to make it clear. The New Testament says that we are all disciples. We're all disciple makers. I don't like that when someone says, are you a full-time, you're in full-time Christian ministry. I mean, that ought to be all of us, right? I mean, there's every one of us, if you're a follower of Christ, you're in full-time Christian ministry. There's not a moment you're off duty. Christ has transformed you, wants to use you to be a blessing to others. With that said, we have, we have, we send some and we call them what? Missionaries. And the word missionary comes from the Latin mito, which means to be sent. It's kind of like the apostolos in Greek, a sent one. And so we, we use the term missionary to describe someone who's sent from us to another culture to share the love of Jesus through teaching, through acts of compassion, through building, planting churches, through through showing God's love in many ways, that, that we send missionaries to do that. And while there's nothing wrong with a missionary working to earn money to support him or herself as he's doing that missionary work, the one who's sent typically is supported financially by those who are sending. And that allows that missionary, just like Paul here, to be able to devote all or most of his or her time to doing the work of building the church, evangelizing, making disciples, and not have to worry about how I'm going to pay the bills next week so that I can have a place to eat, live, and food to eat. So in Paul's situation and in our situation, the less a missionary needs to concern him or herself with outside employment, the more time and energy can be devoted to the work of the gospel. That's the simple principle that we learn from from Acts chapter 18 that's still in play for us today. Now, in our day, it is important to know that we do have some missionaries that we've sent out and many others that, that go into restricted access areas with a business, that they have some kind of work that they do and that's how they get into the country. They, countries don't allow missionaries to come in. So they bring a legitimate business. It's a legitimate business that this person comes in and starts and that gives them a foothold there. And then we do support missionaries like that so that while they're doing this legitimate business, they don't have to depend totally on that for their income so that they can do gospel ministry. Another dynamic that's shifted in the last several decades from missionaries that I talked to is it used to be 20 or 30 years ago, most missionaries would tell you they get most of their financial support from churches and individuals supplement the support they get from churches. Today, what I'm hearing from our missionaries is it's just the opposite of that. Most missionaries get majority of their financial support from families and individuals and it's supplemented by churches. 
That to say, many of you support many missionaries beyond what we do as a church. And we want to say together, even though we may not know all of them, and some some of our groups actually have missionaries and ministries, global ministries that we support that aren't necessarily in our budget, but we're supporting together and we're doing the work that Paul praises the Philippians for doing. Here at First Free, uh, we have 23 missionaries that we support financially as a church. 23 missionaries here in the United States and around the world that we send some level of financial support. The total annual financial support that we send to support these 23 missionaries is around $150,000 a year that we as a church through our outreach fund support. So when you give to the outreach budget or when you give to the general fund, part of the general budget goes to the outreach budget and that goes to support 23 missionaries uh, and we give $150,000 a year for those 23 missionaries. We have a process of accepting missionaries. We have a process of evaluating, staying in relationship with missionaries. Every one of our missionaries has a group here at First Free that has adopted them, and they pray for them. They communicate with them. They have parties for them when they come back to St. Louis. They interact with them. That's part of our ministry to them. We also have Eric, our global outreach coordinator, sends an email newsletter to all of our missionaries about what's going on here in St. Louis at First Free so that we stay in communication with them. I wanted to, I wanted to tell you that because just like Paul was saying to the Philippians about the gift that Silas and Timothy brought to him in Corinth, our missionaries who are on the field doing what they're doing because you're giving see that as a sweet sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That we are, we are partnering with them by helping them to not have to do nine to five jobs to do the work. We're sending them and supporting them and staying connected with them. And that's in addition to a lot of the other outreach stuff. We're doing a lot more than just supporting those individual missionaries. Here in the city of St. Louis, in our own community, and around the world, we're, we're constantly looking for new ways to connect globally with the work of God. In fact, I would appreciate your prayers. I'm leaving this Friday for a trip to Nepal. I've been invited to go with a, a ministry called the Timothy Initiative to, with a, a handful of other pastors here in the United States to Nepal to see the work that this group is doing in church planting. They planted 32,000 churches in 34 countries in 2022. Now, think house church. Don't think the first free kind of church, but, but still, 33,000 around the world, and they've made thousands and thousands of disciples, and I'm going to be going and seeing what they're doing so that we can continue to be on the cutting edge here at First Free of not just doing the gospel work here, but all around the world. So thank you for your giving, and I hope that wasn't just a commercial. You need to know what we're doing as a church, but Paul brings that up here. Thank you for giving so that he could do this ministry full time. So now let's go back to the story today. Paul was unwavering in his desire that the Jews would recognize and embrace Jesus. Their response was to oppose him and to confront him. And the insults were the form of blasphemy. It seemed from Paul's reaction to the opposition, it seems like it must have been a little bit more strong than some of the other areas because Paul doesn't respond this way in the other communities when he receives some kind of, of opposition. Here in Corinth, he shook out the garments of his clothes. He wanted to be rid of even any dust that would be tied to these people. 
Um, his declaration is reminiscent of Old Testament terminology. In essence, what he's saying is, I am free from the responsibility of your eternal destiny because you have so, so ignored and rejected the message of the gospel. Kind of reminiscent of 2 Samuel chapter one, when David declares to the Amalekite who killed King Saul, you have condemned yourself. You have condemned yourself. In Ezekiel, there's a wonderful imagery of the same concept, Ezekiel 33. When a watchman sees the enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. Then if those who hear the alarm refuse to take action, it's their own fault if they die. They heard the alarm but ignored, so the responsibility is theirs. If they'd listened to the warning, they could have saved their lives. Pretty strong words, but it helps us to know what the stakes are here in this gospel work that we're about. If they'd listened to the warning, they could have saved their lives. This is a sobering reminder for us. We like the one side of the coin that says, if any of us get to heaven, it's all because of God. It's all because of his grace. It's all because of his mercy. We've done nothing to earn that. But we don't talk as much about the other side, that if anyone spends eternity in hell, eternal punishment, it's only because they've rejected and ignored the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what the Bible says. And so the stakes are really, really high for us. And we're calling people to a life or death kind of choice, decision, to follow after Jesus. Paul sets up his new base of ministry in the operation uh, in a house right next to the synagogue, Titius Justice, who lived next door. And the response couldn't have been more different. Over here, I'm gonna shake the dust off of my clothes because you've rejected Jesus. And then he goes over here and he finds this wonderful welcome of the gospel. Crispus is mentioned as a leader in the synagogue. And he would have been very visible leading all of the, synagogue Sabbath services, he became a believer as his household did. And you read in verse eight, you just get the feeling that there's this opposition, opposition, opposition. It was looking so dark and so bleak. And then Paul shakes the dust off and says, this is on you. And then he goes over here and it's like the Holy Spirit just opens up this doorway and the gospel's flourishing and taking root and people are following after him. Note how closely, by the way, baptism is tied with salvation in this story. Being, being baptized doesn't save anyone. It's not required to be a Christian. But the concept of a non-baptized believer is very inconsistent with the New Testament. It's very inconsistent. Uh, we, we wouldn't say that baptism is required to be a Christian, but it's really, really an anomaly. It should be an anomaly that there is someone who's claiming the name of Christ and hasn't followed the Lord in baptism. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago when I talk, and it comes out a lot in this section, that one of my favorite authors, a guy named Leslie Newbigin, he was a very, is a very influential missiologist in recent times. <clears throat> and he talks about the gospel in a pluralistic culture. And I think he, he mentioned something that's important for us as we talk about, see how Paul was dealing with this in Corinth and other areas. Because he was talking about how the gospel ought to be out there in the public square. And in the way we look at it here in our culture says the public square, that's where we talk about politics. That's where we talk about, you know, social issues, religion. That's just you. That's a private matter. You just need to talk about that to people privately. Maybe even keep that to yourself. And the danger is sometimes we buy into that. 
We buy into that sometimes as Christians and think, oh yeah, my faith is just a private matter. And what Newbegin talks about, and we see Paul here, is like, no, 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 the gospel's not a private matter. The gospel's not even just about you getting, becoming a Christian. The gospel's about God doing this great work of redeeming and restoring all things to himself, ultimately fulfilled in his res restoration of all things. That's what this is about. It's to everybody's best interest that you become a Christian, not just yours. So we buy into this individualistic kind of way of witnessing, and we miss what Leslie Newbigin talked about as this gospel in a pluralistic culture. If you want to read, by the way, Leslie Newbigin, any of his works, I would encourage you to read The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society or Proper Confidence. They help you to see how he wants us to engage in a culture like ours. If you read that book, uh, send me an email, we'll have coffee and talk about it because it's really fascinating and so helpful for us. But one of the things that he taught was six characteristics of a gospel church. And I think those come through in Paul's ministry here. He said, the first one is a community of praise in a world of doubt and skepticism. That's a characteristic of a gospel church. The second is a community of truth in a pluralistic society that produces relativism. And that's the society we're in. It's a pluralistic society. And the answer, Newbegin would say, the answer is not to have a government that's Christian. He, he said, that actually doesn't help us. The church's brightest days have not been when the government's been on our side, right? Now, a government ought to be just and fair and protect the rights of everybody. But Newbegin made the point, the best, the most fertile ground for the gospel is in a pluralistic culture where put the gospel alongside Islam, put the gospel alongside any other truth claim and let the gospel be the gospel let the holy spirit defend the gospel that's what newbegin would say a selfless community that does not live for itself but's deeply involved in the concerns of its neighborhood the gospel gets involved in people's lives a, a community prepared to live out the gospel in public life in a world that privatizes religious claims and i mentioned that a little bit ago that we we have to resist that cultural expectation that your faith is a private thing because your faith is not just a private thing. Your faith is, is not just about you and God. Your faith is about you and God and this world, this community, your neighborhood, your family. And we need to see it that way. And then a community of faith, a mutual responsibility in a world of individualism and a community of hope in a world of pessimism and despair. I, it sounds like the message that Paul was trying to get in Corinth and in other places he was visiting. So Paul engaged in the public square of God's transforming power and the gospel, which ought to be in that public discourse, took root. This is the level of engagement that brings opposition and that's what happens to Paul now. We're not going to be both effective and unnoticed if we take the gospel into our culture. In fact, the territory that, that God wants us to take the gospel to is already occupied by other gods. The territory that God wants us to take the gospel to is already occupied by other gods. There are other false gods. There's worship of fame and comfort and all kinds of other gods that we will displace, which will lead to opposition. Look at Acts chapter 18, verses nine to 11. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid to speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. 
So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. Now, the reason that Paul was afraid isn't told us here. This vision, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent, but doesn't say what the fear is. We do know from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, that Paul acknowledges that there was, there was an element of fear in his ministry in Corinth that we don't see or don't read about in other areas. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, I came to you in weakness, timid, and trembling. Some translations say in fear and trembling. So there was something about the ministry in Corinth that was troubling the soul of the apostle. And the answer is found in the Lord's presence. Hearkening back to Matthew 28, 20, teach these, disciples, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Embracing God's presence is the key to overcoming fear. In fact, I think that's probably the key to living the Christian life, isn't it? Just have that first reminder, oh, God's here. God's here. God's here. God's presence is here. God's got this. God's pre- if, if we just remembered that and lived into that, we would be much more bold in all kinds of obedience to him. So the reason given for Paul's boldness is because the Lord has already chosen many people in Corinth. It's, it's kind of interesting. He said that he has many people in the city. Many people in the city belong to me. And we don't know exactly what that means. It could be one of two things. It could be that there are more Christians in Corinth than you know about, Paul. There are more of my people here than you know. Kind of like you met Aquila and Priscilla. You didn't know there were Christians here. There are more than that. That could be one way. Or it could be that you're about to experience an abundant harvest of souls that you don't even know about. More of these people are mine and they don't even know it yet. But I'm about to do something incredible here. And you're going to experience an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people coming to faith. Either way, it's comforting to the apostle, so comforting that he he hangs around there and he has a fruitful ministry there for the next year and a half. He stays in Corinth making disciples. At some point during those 18 months, as happens for Paul, uh, he becomes, uh, he, he finds some opposition, Jewish leaders band together. They come up with a vague charge in verse 13 that he is persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. And then Gallio, who is the governor of Achaia, well, case was brought before him. He made it clear he would have nothing to do with it. In verse 14, just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to the accusers and said, listen, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or serious crime, I would have reason to accept your case. But since it's a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourself. I'm not going to deal with it. He didn't even give Paul a chance to state his case. He's like, you know, sit down. I'm not even, I don't even need to hear you. This is an internal Jewish problem. And he let them go. Now this from a Roman's perspective, from a Roman perspective, Christianity was just a Jewish sect. So they were not going to get involved in this religious skirmish. This proved advantageous for Paul, but it didn't prove advantageous for everyone. In fact, you would like the government leader to not let somebody get beat up like they just does right after that. But Paul is freed. Paul is able to share the gospel. And then Left little protection, though. And we see in verse 17, the crowd grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there. And Gallio paid no attention. It could have been Sosthenes' lack of success in persuading Gallio to punish Paul, that the people were just 
dissatisfied. He didn't do a good job, so they're going to beat him up because they're angry. And it, it, but it might be, and we don't know about this because we don't know how many Sosthenes there were in Corinth. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there is a mention of a man named Sosthenes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's a co-author of 1 Corinthians with Paul. We're not sure if it's the same Sosthenes, but if it is, he could have been a Christian sympathizer or a believer, which might be part of why he was beaten up. So at that time or after, he could have embraced Christ. Again, we don't know. There may be more than one Sosthenes, but it's interesting to consider that. It's about being silent and not being silent. The reason we send missionaries to reach the lost in remote parts of the world the reason we hold up the message of Christ here in our own community and in our own blocks and our own street is so that everyone will know God and know of him. And this whole community is going to be better because the gospel is taking root and there are disciples that are being made. Again, we're not promoting a self-help plan and we can fall into this as Western Christians. This is about you and God. Your life's going to be so much better when you're a Christian and then Here's how you need to live as a Christian. There is a personal element to that, no question. But we can lose sight in our tradition of the big plan of what, how the whole world benefits when the gospel takes root. Newbegin described his time as a missionary in India, seeing in one, one home he was at a statue of representing Jesus on a, on a mantle with all the other gods that the Indian worship, the Indians worship. And, and it was like, on this certain day, we pay homage to Jesus, just like all the others. And Newbegin warned against that kind of syncretism in our own lives. It's so dangerous when we just put Jesus along, all the other, along with all the other things that we devote ourselves to. When we stop seeing Jesus as just one of many pursuits, and we see him as the only pursuit. That's when God is able to use us in powerful ways. When we stop seeing Jesus as one of many pursuits, and we see him as the only pursuit, our focus changes, our prayers change, our giving changes, our conversation changes, our worship changes, because he's the only thing. Rabbi Cutler of Montreal wrote an article suggesting some questions that we should use to decide whether we should remain quiet on any kind of an issue. Again, this was about the ethics of being quiet, being silent. One of the questions is, how will I see myself in 20 years if I don't speak up? How will I see myself in 20 years if I don't speak up? Now he's talking about some social issue or wrong, but what about the gospel? How will I see myself in 20 years if I don't speak up through my words, through my actions, through my giving? I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of conversations, too many conversations with people, friends, family, that I didn't know it was going to be the last conversation I had with them. And I've wondered, boy, should I have shared the gospel? Should I have been more outspoken about my hope that that person knows Jesus. I didn't know it was going to be the last time I talked to them. In the cause of the gospel, someone's eternity is always at stake. How will we see ourselves in 20 years if we don't speak up? 
for the change that God has brought to us through Christ. Father, we ask that you would take this passage of scripture, which is so much about speaking up and being bold and understanding the the work that you're doing through us. Forgive us for letting our faith be part of our private world and not seeing it as part of the public discourse. Help us in our lives, even this week, to be bold in our actions and our words and our prayers and all that we do, to let the message of Jesus Christ be put out there so that you can do what you do best, which is saving people's souls. In Jesus' name.